Well, friends, for the next bit of our time together this morning, we're going to work through some of the details from the section of the Bible that Emily just read for us. It's, it's from a book within the Bible that's called 1 Corinthians, uh, a letter actually, written by one of the first Christian leaders, a man named Paul, who had founded a church in the Greek city of Corinth, then moved on to other areas in the ancient world to, to tell more people about Jesus and to found more churches. And then in order to continue pastoring that church that he founded back in Corinth, wrote letters to them to help them continue to understand what it means that Jesus lived and died and rose and continue to put into practice the, the implications of those huge claims. Because we're going to be uh, looking together at some of the details from this passage, it would be great if you had it open in front of you. Uh, Matt's already mentioned the Bibles that are provided within arm's reach and that on page 903 you can find the section that we're going to be looking through together. I want to strongly encourage you to, to flip over there and, and keep a finger there and hold it. Uh, this section that Emily read for us is mostly about the resurrection of Jesus and why it's such a big deal for us as Christians. Uh, the, the heart of the, of the passage is a claim that's just really super straightforward. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ was buried. And Christ rose again. But for that claim to make any sense at all, it really helps to know the bigger story that that claim fits into. The claim itself is straightforward. Where it's coming from, why it matters, for that you need to know a little more. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I got this one from a philosopher I admire a lot. He says, imagine, imagine you are walking down the sidewalk, let's call it downtown Nashville, you're dodging the pedal taverns and the bird scooters. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a guy you've never seen before walks up to you and says, totally out of the blue, you know the name of the common wild duck in Latin is histrionicus, histrionicus, histrionicus. The claim is super straightforward. He's also correct. That's the official name of the common wild duck. You're welcome. <laughs> now you know. The claim is super straightforward, but to make any sense of it at all, you'd have to know what story that fit into. You need some context for that claim. And there's a few different stories that can make sense of it. I mean, maybe this is a man suffering from some sort of mental illness. He's on medication that's not been administered in the proper dose, and he's just saying things that are in his head with no good reason for it. That would make sense. Maybe this guy's a Russian spy. And this is the code word that he had established with his contact in, on, on Broadway. For when you see him, you'll know him by the histrionicus, histrionicus, histrionicus line. Go find someone for whom that resonates. That would make sense. You could understand where that's coming from. Maybe he mistook you for somebody he ran into at the library yesterday who had asked him, do you by chance know the Latin name of the common wild duck? And he's just remembered it. Hey, there you are. How fortuitous. It's histrionicus, histrionicus, histrionicus. That would make sense too. But one way or another, you're going to need help to know why that claim makes any sense at all. The claim is straightforward, but it's just coming out of nowhere. I think that what Christians believe about the resurrection of Jesus is kind of like this, if you're not familiar with the story. I mean, it involves a bunch of straightforward claims. Things like our belief that there's a God who made the world. That this God who made the world chose to become a human, just like us. That as a human, this God willingly died, even though he didn't deserve to. 
That once he died, he came back to life again. That now this human, even though he came back to life 2,000 years ago, is still alive in that same real body that you can't see now because he's not here, but, but if he were here, you'd be able to see. And he now reigns over a kingdom that you're invited into, even though you can't see it. A kingdom without borders, without an army, without any of the trappings of the kingdoms of this world. Without any context, you hear any one of those claims, let's just choose the claim that Christ is risen. And it can sound a lot like saying the Latin name of the common wild duck is histrionicus. Unless you know how this claim comes at the climax of a story that was all building to this moment. To this pivot point for human history. In a story that's as big as all the world and that makes sense of everything. Beginning with where we came from and ending with where we're heading. The past few months here at Edgefield, we've been looking at the very beginning of the big story that the Bible is meant to tell us. We've been looking at the first sections of the first book in the Bible, a book called Genesis. And we've been trying to unpack those first few chapters for what they have to tell us about who we are as humans. This morning, what I want to do is reach back to some of what we've seen there for the good of those who need a refresher, you know, those of us who have been here for all of it, but also and especially to set the stage for those of you who may not be familiar with the story the Bible tells so that you're ready to understand and to embrace the message of Easter that we've just been reading and singing and praying about already in our time together this morning. Most of what we're going to do together in the next little bit is going to come from 1 Corinthians 15. But I'm going to do my best before we get there to try to squeeze through a funnel about four months worth of material from Genesis into four things you need to know about the story of everything. Point number one this morning, the story of everything. So that we can finish our time on the story of Easter. Point number one, the story of everything. I'm gonna squeeze that story down to four things you need to know to make sense of Jesus. Here's number one. The first piece of information you need about the story of everything that the Bible tells is that we exist because God made us. We, me, you, everybody in this room, everybody from everywhere, we exist because God made us. The Bible tells us where we came from. It's right there in the very first verse of the Bible. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Just 10 simple words in English. But in these simple, straightforward words, a bedrock foundation, poured concrete, steel rebar, underneath everything that we think about everything else. These words tell us that the world exists, that everything else in the world exists, that every one of us exists only because God decided freely to create all of it. Two huge implications here. On the one hand, we wouldn't even be here if God had not decided to create us. Sometimes, I don't know about for you, sometimes for me it's easy to just take my life for granted, to just kind of assume my life. I, I can't imagine not being alive. Can you? So, so when we can't imagine not being alive, it's easy to just assume that our lives are necessary, that they're, that they're ours, and therefore to just think about where we're headed, not where we came from. 
to think about what we want to build from our lives, and even more, to look around at others and kind of measure ourselves against, against how they're doing with their lives. But the Bible won't let us start there. The Bible tells us in Genesis 1-1 that the, the first thing to know about ourselves is not that, that, well, in my case, that I'm me and not you, but to know that I'm a creature and not God. We owe our lives to him, and we wouldn't be here if he hadn't decided to create us. That's implication number one. But, I mean, if that's a bit of a blow to you, if that is a, a little bit humbling to, to think about, the flip side, on the other hand, is that we're here because God wanted to create us. We're only here because he did. But we are here because he wanted to. He chose to give life to something besides himself. That means we're not here because of some random freak accident in the mysterious and unreachable past. We're here right now because God is love. Because he shares life with what wouldn't be here, with what wouldn't live otherwise. We're here because it's in his nature to give and to give and to give. The first chapter of Genesis lays it all out. It describes God creating the world step by step and looking at everything he does and saying, oh, it is good. He's like an artist who admires his own work, who realizes, yeah, that stroke had to be there. That's the perfect stroke to put there. Let me put this one over here. Oh, yeah. That is good. Or like a chef who, who, who tinkers with the dish, element by element, ingredient by ingredient, taste testing. Yes, that's it. Oh, what if we did this over here until it's perfect and ready for, its, for his guests? We exist only because God created us. But we exist because God created us. He wanted to. And that leads me to the second thing you need to know about the story of everything, if you want to make sense of Jesus. Our lives matter because God loves us. Let me put it more directly than that. Your life, friend, your life matters because God loves you. God made everything that is, but he made humans with a special dignity and purpose. I already talked about this first big line that the Bible draws, a huge, bright, shining line between God and everything else. But there is another big line that the, that the Bible draws about it within this world. And that's the line between humans and everything else that God made. God made us with a unique dignity and purpose that he didn't assign to anything else in this world. And there is nothing in all the world so precious as a human life. Simply because there's nothing in all the world so precious to God. Genesis 1 calls calls us uh, humans as made in the image of God. That's how it describes this reality. And that's why human lives deserve special honor and protection, no matter what capacities they have or what language they speak or what they may or may not be able to contribute to society. I think you know this. Deep down in your bones, I think you know this. Here's two scenarios that played out in my week this week, just to illustrate that you know this already. Scenario number one, our countertops have been covered with ants. Happens more regularly than we'd like it to, probably a byproduct of children who leave crumbs and dogs whose food live in open bags, I don't know. But we have ants. And every time I see an ant, you know what I do? I take this little index finger right here, and if I can reach it, I smash it. Then I smash that one, 
that one. Sometimes I try to see how many can I smash onto one finger at one time. That happened a lot this week. Another thing that happened this week is that I read a huge spread in the New York Times based on interviews with people who had been living in Bucha, a suburb of Kiev, during the Russian occupation. Absolutely horrifying. The pictures and the words in equal measure, stunning. What these pictures and words revealed was a a stretch of time in this one city full of beautiful, precious people made in God's image during which they were treated as if their lives were not important. Innocent, defenseless civilians were executed on the streets. They were executed in their homes. Others were confined and abused without mercy for the duration of that occupation. And what comes through clearly, what you can't deny, if you, if you see what I saw and read what I read, is that life was cheap in Bucha last month. These Ukrainian lives were treated like inconvenient pests to be exterminated. We know, as surely as we know anything else, we know deep down that those two scenarios from my week are different from one another. That exterminating inconvenient ants may be unfortunate, but it's understandable and acceptable. But exterminating inconvenient humans is egregious. It's barbaric. It's evil. And deserves to be punished. Can you explain the difference between the two? Does your story of everything explain why one is okay and one is not? According to the Bible, the difference is that God made humans in his image. And we know that human lives matter deep down because he made us in his image. And because humans are made in his image, it isn't up to the ones with the bigger tanks and guns to decide how much a human life is worth. They just don't get to say that. It's up to God. And just because you might have the might to destroy that life does not give you the right to destroy that life. That life belongs to God and it's precious to him. That's the second thing you need to know about the Bible's story of everything. Our lives matter because they are precious to God. He loves us. The third thing you need to know about the story of everything is that tragically, our lives end because we've disobeyed God. Our lives end, they always end because we've disobeyed God. As good as this world so obviously is, we know this world is broken too. It's full of suffering and sorrow. It's a world of oppression and evil. And no matter how any one of us may fare along the way, these precious lives that God has given us always end in death. I don't see much hesitancy out there in the world these days about pointing out problems in the world. We're all super into that. 
I'm not sure Twitter or cable news would survive a day if you pulled out all the finger pointing and grandstanding about all the ways everyone else is ruining the world. But the Bible won't let us get away with that. The Bible places responsibility for the brokenness in this world on every single one of us. It says, I am the problem. They are not the problem. I am the problem. And our problem emerged in the very beginning. God gave our first parents, Adam and Eve, life and purpose and all sorts of provisions. They, he, they had everything that they needed. And he also gave them a boundary. He set a line that they were not to cross, Genesis 3. It was an opportunity for them to trust that he was God and that he was good and that he's for them when he says yes and he's for them when he says no. He set a boundary that allowed them to accept a line between God and themselves. And that that line was a good gift, not a set of shackles. But they chose to live as if their lives belonged to them. They chose to aim their lives at what they wanted for themselves. And all of us are implicated in what's wrong with this world because all of us have made the same choice that they did. Because in every single one of us is the same me-first impulse that we see play out in the barbarity of, of the occupation of Kiev and its suburbs. The same impulse that leads a soldier to point and shoot at a defenseless civilian. The same impulse that says, my life is worth more than yours, and my life is mine to live on my terms. That lives in me, and it lives in you. And every trace of brokenness in this beautiful world stems from that impulse and all the ways that we've acted on it. Death enters the story as God's answer to our evil foolishness. Your life? No. No, it's mine. This third piece to the, to the story of everything raises the question that the Bible is meant to answer. What can be done about what we've done to this world and the answer is that nothing can be done about it if we're all that we've got to work with but God takes the initiative to fix it God takes the initiative and he takes it right there in the story of Genesis 3 leads me to the fourth thing you need to know about the story of everything there is hope because God sent Jesus for us there is hope because God sent Jesus for us. That word of hope comes out right in Genesis 3, right in the middle of where this whole thing starts to fall apart. God promises a day when someone would come to crush the power of evil. That hope gets built on year after year, generation after generation through the history of Israel. It comes through clearly in the prophets, like the one that Fernando read from, from Isaiah 25. Uh, the, the hope that, that one day God himself would swallow up death. God himself would wipe away every tear. God himself would set this endless feast that we can enjoy forever free of all the brokenness we've introduced into this world that he made. And then the New Testament promises that that, that all of these things we've been waiting for, all of these things that have been forecasted, they all come through the person of Jesus who God sent to us from his love. Everything zooms in on this one man 
sent from the same love that gave us our lives in the first place to rescue us from the mess that we made. It's John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in all the Bible. God so loved the world that he made from love that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not die, but have eternal life. The Bible's a big story about everything, where we've come from, what's gone wrong, what can be done about it. And it's ultimately a story full of hope and built around promises that God offers forgiveness and restoration to anyone who asks him for it. And that whole story, that story of everything that we've spent the last four months trying to understand together, it raises one huge question that we focus on this morning. How can we know that it's true? How can we know that God can fix what we've broken? From the story of everything, we turn, point two, to the story of Easter. It's the story that Paul is explaining to us in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He puts the story of Easter right at the dead center of Christianity itself. He says to us in this letter that everything stands or falls with what happened in history on the day Jesus came out of the grave. And he wrote these verses so that we would know two things, what happened and why it matters. 1 Corinthians 15 is here so we would know what happened and why it matters. The first several verses in in chapter 15 tell us what happened. It's like an executive summary of of all the things Christians believe about Jesus. Look at verse 3. I delivered to you, Paul says, as of first importance, what I also received. This message is bigger than Paul. He didn't come up with it. It's what he heard from those who were there to see it all. And it's simple and straightforward. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, meaning he really was dead. People checked him out. He wasn't just unconscious. He hadn't just fallen asleep. They knew the difference between one who was dead and who wasn't, and they buried him because he was dead. But he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Those are the facts of the matter. And then do you notice what Paul does? He starts rattling off all the witnesses who saw that Jesus was alive again. He appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter. He appeared to the 12, the men that he'd spent most of his ministry walking around Israel with. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Then James, then all the apostles, and lastly, to me, to Paul. Why do you think he does that? Why does he rattle off all these witnesses to what happened? It's because Paul knew that dead people were not supposed to come alive again. Paul knew that his readers wouldn't have expected dead people to come alive again. They knew better than that. Sometimes we look back on these ancient times and think people were easily duped back then. That their world was just full of enchantments and they they would believe anything that they were told. But that wasn't true. We know more now than they knew back then. You know, they they may not have known what we know about how the world works. They, They didn't know that we're orbiting the sun or that our sun's just one of umpteen trillion other stars or whatever quantum physics means for our daily lives. They didn't know all of those things, but they knew that dead people don't walk out of their graves. They won't just believe that because Paul says so. They needed evidence. You see what he's doing here. 
He's saying, here's what happened, and you can go check it for yourself. 500 people saw him, and most of them are still alive. This was written within the lifetimes of the people who were there so that it could be confirmed or denied. Paul is essentially telling them to go check for themselves. And friends, if you're considering Christianity this morning, I want to just say to you, the evidence for what happened, that Jesus really died and really rose again, is strong and credible. This evidence is worth your time to consider if you haven't before. In fact, I've got a couple of things I'd put in your hands this morning if you're interested in some recommendations of what you can read. The evidence is strong, and it's worth your time to consider it. And the main reason I want you to do that is that it really matters if Jesus rose again or not. The second thing Paul is trying to do in 1 Corinthians 15 is not just tell us what happened, but tell us why it matters Paul is putting this event right at the heart of Christianity. It's not one of those things that Christians can agree to disagree on, like whether or not Jesus really rose again or not. Paul is saying, no, it is the load-bearing wall. You pull out the resurrection of Jesus, and Christianity just falls apart. The house just collapses in on itself. It's not worth your time. If Christ is not raised from the dead, this is verse 14, look there. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. And verse 19, if Christ has not been raised, Christians, Paul, me, we are of all people in the world, we're the most to be pitied. We are fools if Jesus is still in the grave. For one reason or another, it seems like some people in this church at Corinth were denying that Jesus was alive again. We don't really know why they did. Uh, maybe they were just drawn to Christianity because they liked Jesus' teachings. You know, they, they liked his way of life. He seemed like such a, a moral man. Seemed like someone they could learn from. Someone they wanted to follow after. Maybe that's what drew them to him. You don't need a resurrected Jesus to learn from him. Maybe it was just too hard to believe. Just not something they were interested in. Not the kind of faith they thought they could own around their friends. Who knows? But they thought you could have Christianity without the resurrection. And Paul is saying, as clearly and powerfully as he can muster, no, absolutely not. Why? What makes the story of Easter so central to the story of everything? Why is it so important that Jesus is alive today? Paul, in this chapter, points us to two reasons. And with these, we close. If Jesus isn't alive again, if Jesus isn't alive again, then sin has not been handled. If Jesus isn't alive again, sin has not been handled. Remember what we said about the story of everything? Underneath all the brokenness in our world and in our hearts is a problem of sin against God and against one another. Sin has spoiled this good and beautiful world. And for everything to be set right again, sin just has to be dealt with. Paul said in verse 3 of chapter 15 that Christ died for our sins. And then in verse 17 he says, if he isn't alive again, you're still in your sins. Do you see that? Look at verse 17. 
If Jesus is not raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Here's what Paul means. He means that if Jesus is still dead, sin's penalty hasn't yet been paid. There's some balance still due. Some sentence still hanging over our heads. Somebody compared the grave to a prison cell. When somebody commits a crime and has to do time in prison, they stay there behind those locked bars until their debt to society is paid. How do you know if someone is now right with the world? How do you know if the debt has been paid? You know when the door of the prison swings open and they walk out of that cell and onto the street free and clear. So long as that person's in prison, so long as the bars are shut and locked, there's some debt that's still left to pay. And so it is with Jesus. As long as he, as long as he laid in the grave, this penalty for sin that he died to pay for us was unfulfilled. And we'd be left to wonder, has he done enough? Can we be forgiven? Is there something more to pay? But when Jesus walked out of the grave, when that stone was rolled away and his real human body walked out of that tomb, Paul says in Romans, he was raised because of our justification. Raised because our debt was paid in full. Raised because God looked at what he did and stamped it. It is finished. If he hasn't been raised, our sin hasn't been handled. But, Paul says, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. We are not still in our sins. Remember, I saw him, Paul is saying. So did Peter. So did the disciples. So did like 500 other people, most of whom are still alive. He has, in fact, been raised from the dead. And it's just at this point that Paul shifts his focus from the problem of sin that Jesus' death handled for us and to the prospect and promise of a future that Jesus' resurrection promises to us. The second reason it matters is this. Since he is alive again, everything will one day be made new. Since he is alive again, everything will one day be made new. In verses 20 to 22, Paul ties the story of Easter to the story of everything. As by a man came death, he's talking about Adam. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Through Adam's sin, death enters the world. Through Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. What what was done to this world through Adam will be undone by Jesus. And because he's risen, Paul's saying, you can bank on it. The new day is already dawning. Nothing can stop it now. I love the way that Paul describes this same idea in verse 23. He takes a pass back over the exact same thing that he's been saying already and lays out what's coming in a kind of chain reaction order where one event leads necessarily to the next event, leads to the next event, leads to the next event, leads all the way home. Look at verse 23 with me. 
Each in his own order, he says, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And the last enemy to be destroyed, verse 26, is death. You see what he's doing? He pictures the whole thing, all that we're hoping for, the new day we live for and long for. He pictures the whole thing using the image of a harvest. Where the first thing you see after you've planted and watered and waited is a little shoot of green popping up through the ground. And if you, if you fed your family through what you grew that year, if you lived on the razor's edge of the ancient agricultural society where a bad harvest meant you could die along with everyone you cared about, you waited on the edge of your seat while that stalk grew taller. You waited and you watched and you did everything in your power to fight off the bugs and to fight off the heat and to fight off the cold and to fight off the drought. You did everything in your power, but mostly you just waited and watched. And then at some point, you go to check your crops and you notice that one of these stalks, one of these stalks has something on it. The first fruits of the harvest. And with that first fruits, not just one meal for that day, but a sign that the whole thing is coming. That just behind that first fruits, you will have a field full of food for your family for the year. And when you see the first fruits, you know at that point it's only a matter of time. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't relate as well to the agricultural imagery. Not a farmer. I relate a little better to the image of a roller coaster. I love roller coaster rides. Haven't ridden one in a while. Love them. Long for the day when my kids are old enough to go ride with me. One of the things I love about roller coaster rides is to sit in the very back car. It's faster back there. The front car gets all the attention. You know, that's the one where the lines are super long. But the back car is faster. The back car gets the full effect of the hills. It doesn't get kind of lowered down part way like that front car does. And maybe what I love best about that back car is that the whole ride, if you want to, you can look up to that front car and you get a little preview of where you're headed. You go up that click, 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 click of that first hill watching that first car. You see it go over the crest of that hill and drop out of your sight. And you know, here we go. That's going to be me. You crest that hill and you fly down it and then you watch as that first car starts up the first loop. Oh, they're upside, oh, I'm gonna be upside down. You watch them as they go around the corkscrew turns and back through more hills and over, over and under. And it, every time you, you look at that front car, you know that's where I'll be soon enough. I, I think verse 23 is like a roller coaster where you've got Christ as that first car. And then at his coming, those who belong to him, they're hitched to that first car. Where it goes, they go. And behind them, the renewal of absolutely everything because at the very end is death waiting to be defeated. It's only a matter of time. That coaster is hitched and gone. And we know because Jesus is raised again from the dead. It's all true. What's Paul getting at? 
He's trying to show us that Christ's resurrection is the promise that soon enough, everything will be made new. This new Adam followed old Adam to the dust, but not as dust. He went as seed. And he has sprouted up again. The first fruits of those who will one day be raised from the dead. And he won't raise us up only to set us back in a world as broken as ours is, where evil so often holds power and where we'd just be waiting to die all over again. He will raise us up for a new world when the last enemy has been defeated once and for all. And we may not be able to see that world from here. We're all painfully aware of that. But the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead means it's coming. And there is no stopping it. That's why we celebrate the story of Easter. We celebrate it because it fits like a key into a lock. The story of everything and all that we're longing for. When we say he is risen, we mean the curse of sin has been lifted once and for all. When we say he is risen, we mean, oh, the deathless day of feasting and joy, it's coming and nothing can stop it. When we say he is risen, what we mean is God is making all things new through the new Adam who lived and died and rose for us. So what now? It's so simple, friends. Trust in Jesus. Get on this roller coaster. Let him pull you all the way home. He will. You could climb this coaster this morning. What's holding you back? Maybe you're thinking, that coaster, uh uh-uh, that's for people who haven't done what I've done. I'm surprised I didn't get struck by lightning when I stepped through that door over there this morning. And if these people really knew who they were sitting next to, they'd ride me out of here on a rail. Friend, I don't know what you've done. That's true. God does. He's seen every bit of it. And because he's God and doesn't work like we do, he already knew what you would do when in love he sent his son to die for sins that he knew he could forgive that he knew you would commit and that he will forgive you for this very morning because Jesus has already done what it takes for him to do that. He is risen. That means that debt is paid if you'll leave it to him. Oh, but you say, I can't get on that roller coaster uh, because it'll cost me too much. People think I'm crazy. I don't want to be one of those religious nuts, you know. You know who I'm talking about. I mean, it could affect my career, If I had to obey Jesus, I might have to start giving my money away. I certainly don't want to have to change who I sleep with. And you're right, friend. If that's that's what's holding you back, the cost will be high to follow Jesus. He describes it as taking up your cross and dying every day. And that is really what it feels like when it's going well. (laughs) But I can tell you this. Hopping on that coaster, trusting in Jesus won't cost you one thing that death wasn't going to steal away from you anyway in the end. And I would encourage you not to look just at what it will cost you, but at what you will gain. Christ is risen. 
death is defeated. One day the whole world will be made new and there will be no more reason to cry. And you could be part of that if you will. Who cares what it costs? Who cares if you have to give something up now that you're only going to have to give up eventually when you die anyway? Give it up now and join Jesus. And get on now while you still can. Because one day the one who was raised for us will return again. Paul says that. He will be as visible to each one of us as he once was to Paul and to Peter and all those disciples and those 500 witnesses. We will all see him when he comes. But Paul says in verse 23 that he comes for those who belong to him. That means those who by faith trust him and trust nothing else. And Paul says at the end of the chapter in verse 52 that he'll come in a moment. We don't know when. It'll be in the twinkling of an eye, the sounding of a trumpet. Then he will come for those who belong to him. Friends, please don't wait to trust in Jesus. Don't assume that you can think about it tomorrow or you can think about it when you hit your 30s or you can think about it when you reach your deathbed. Don't wait till tomorrow. Trust in Christ today and if you will, if you will trust him, he he will receive you and he will carry you all the way home. We'd love the chance to be part of that journey with you. Let me pray now before we sing together to close this morning's time. Oh, Father, we thank you for Jesus, the new Adam, whose life was perfect, whose death was undeserved, but so sufficient to cover every one of our sins, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done. And we thank you for Jesus who lives again, even now, We pray to you only for the eyes to see him, for eyes of faith that will see and trust him, even though we can't see him. And we pray that you would not only give us faith, but hold us in faith until he comes again. We ask this of you in Jesus' name, amen.